Climate change is a global phenomenon. But we experience it where we live, in our homes and workplaces, streets and parks, and in our bodies, wherever they're found. For 4.2 million people, that's in Montreal. Welcome to Zone Rouge, CJLO's series about the impact of the climate crisis on Montreal. Montreal has made ambitious targets on climate change. And people in Montreal have made headlines around the world by gathering in the hundreds of thousands to demand action on climate change. But the city is going to be changed by the climate, too. This week on the series, but all Winter. This snow is actually proof of how undependable winter weather is becoming. Kind of overall, what's, what's happening is that the extreme, what our definition of extreme is, um, is changing. And so as the climate warms, there are still going to be days where it's really cold. But what, our, what, what we perceive to be really cold um, is, is less cold. It's less and less cold, essentially. From winter sports and festivals to snow removal, Montreal is a city shaped, for much of the year, by winter. But thanks to climate change, that relationship is changing. Another manifestation of a climate crisis that is increasingly affecting people's mental well-being. The surface temperature of the Earth in 2018 was the fourth highest in nearly 140 years of record heat. And so this kind of awareness of climate change, the dire impacts, can really uh, weigh on many of us. And so we might start to feel anxious, uh, hopeless, um, like there's not a lot of action that's being taken. And uh, increasingly there's been terms that are being used like eco-anxiety or climate anxiety or climate grief or eco-grief. There's still hope and I'm still driven by this feeling uh, of being like super conscious and afraid about this like looming crisis. Um, it bleeds everywhere. This series was recorded on unceded indigenous land, where the Ganyagahaga Nation is recognized as the custodians of the lands and waters and in Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. I'm Maura Donovan. Let's get to it. I'm an immigrant from, from Holland, and I came to Canada in 1966. And I was really quite fascinated by the winter, of course, because in Holland, the culture is based on water. In Quebec, the, 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 the local song is Mon pays, c'est pas un pays, c'est l'hiver. That's ice, that's snow. And um, I remember the first big snowstorm. Uh, my, my birthday is in the beginning of, of November. It was on November 11. I was in Old Montreal, and I had to walk home, and the snow was a foot deep. And I said, boy, this is Canada. 
I think most, I hope most Montrealers have used an outdoor rink or an outdoor skating rink at some point in their in their life. It's a very iconic part of the Montreal and Quebec and Canadian Canadian landscape. Um, so certainly, when we were kids, I had two younger brothers, and we would go and play on the outdoor rink near my parents' home. When I started studying architecture, I was fascinated that ice becomes this wonderful, strong material from water. So we did an experiment with a group of my classmates, hanging big sheets of nylon from trees, and then cutting the wires that they were hanging from, and there we had a freestanding structure, a big one. Wow. Uh, and then I became a, a professor at McGill, and I decided to do this as a design project with my students most years. So I have, I must have done 20 years of that. We had one rink that was particularly closer to my parents' home, and so we went there most often, and there was an old, um, building, I guess you could call it a chalet where you could change and put your skates on. And so, of course, that was always the first walking to the rink, which could potentially be quite cold. And so you sometimes would run instead of walk so that you just get that blood flowing and you never wanted to let your skates get too cold. Because uh, if you had a long walk ahead of you and it was really cold, by the time you got to the, the place where you put your skates on, your, your skates could be blocks of ice themselves, which is never fun. Ice is a wonderful material and, and it makes itself, you know, six months a year. So it's, uh, it's really, uh, there's, a, there's a beautiful book which deals, which has a large section on uh, ice palaces in Montreal. In 1885, uh, there was uh, a movement to bring... The, the railway to New York had been built and they wanted to bring uh, tourists to Montreal in the winter particularly, the same as the ice, the, the snow uh, festival in Quebec right now. So they started building ice uh, castles, as they call them. They cut ice blocks out of the river and they built at Dominion Square across from Windsor Station. They built huge structures, very big, uh, and then they lit them up uh, initially with uh, torches, later on with electrical lights. And they had big festivals around there and the whole thing. So that's where I took partly my inspiration from, that the idea that we try to make the winter an interesting thing, let's have activities rather than sit home next to the stove, you know, freezing to death. When I was at McGill as a student, we would go and play at nearby rinks as well. And you can have some absolutely magnificent days and it might seem cold if you're just walking around, but once you get skating, once you get the blood flowing, it's, it's remarkable that you can probably play hockey at minus 20 and feel just fine. We always rubbed shoulders with engineering students going in the same building because they went to... And they were... When we built it, our first big structures, we used nylon sheets and then sprayed them up. And the engineer said, that's not an ice structure. You're cheating. You're, you're using nylon reinforced ice build a real ice structure. So I said, all right. So we made a, a 20 foot arch, which is pretty high, it's two stories and 20 foot span and made out of 2000 two liter milk cartons that we laid on a plywood form in, in slush as mortar. And the engineers were saying, yeah, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work, it's gonna fall down for sure. So the next morning we pulled out this, the wood form and there stood our wonderful arch. I put some neon lighting on it and it was quite spectacular. So. That's one that stands out because very elegant and very simple to make. Uh, we built, <laughs> in 1898, the Berlin Wall came down. So I, I decided to celebrate the falling down of the Berlin Wall. 
and looked at a, a part of the city where I could build a model, a full-scale model of the Berlin Wall in height. And it turned out to be Milton Street. So I talked to John Gardner, who was at that time a very user-friendly city councillor, and said, can you get me the okay that we built <laughs> an ice wall across Milton Street? And he said, sure, go ahead. And we did. And we spray-painted it. With, uh, and, and several Eastern Europeans came with tears in their eyes. Oh, so wonderful to see the Berlin Wall in Montreal. So... <laughs> And so, but yeah, that's, I ran into a colleague from the mechanical engineering department in the early 1990s. And he says, Peter, I haven't seen you out on the campus because many people found it sort of funny, this, this Dutch guy running around the campus with a dozen students in minus 20 in snowstorms. And so he, the, the engineer, where have you been? I haven't seen you. And I said, uh, I can no longer rely on the weather. In, in you know, the, the winter term starts in January 5th and 6th and ran still May, April. Uh, and I always had at least two weeks of cold, reliable weather that I could send students out. But it was really painful to send a group of students out. Uh, uh, and then started raining and the whole thing, thup, gone. So that's what happened. And it was really because it's, it's still pretty cold in Montreal sometimes, but you can't rely on a particular period of a week or 10 days that almost certainly will be cold. I'm one of the co-founders of PetsneyMontreal.ca, a website that helps people find open outdoor hockey rinks and skating rinks that are in good shape uh, in the city of Montreal. The average temperature globally and the average temperature in Montreal over the long term is increasing. Uh, part of it's climate change, of course, and then part of it also is just the growth of the city and, and uh, the heat of automobiles and cement, etc. So. It's, uh, it's an ongoing challenge, and the city has since partnered with the Montreal Canadiens to put in some refrigerated rinks. Uh, I think there's five or six of them in the city, and that, that of course, helps tremendously, um, especially when there's fluctuations in the weather where it goes from cold to warm back to cold. Well, that can destroy the rink, and it takes a number of days to rebuild it. So that's the story of uh, the changing climate, and I haven't been outside building. Oh, no, and then two years ago, I decided to give it another, another uh, try uh, to build a, uh, a dome 20 feet span and 20 feet high using uh, 2,000 balloons that, we, that I got on, on, on Amazon. Uh, so I had all the students fill 2,000 balloons with five liters of water, which was quite a big job, put them on the campus. They all froze nicely in round spheres. And we started laying them in, uh, in, in a, what's called a beehive hut. It's 20 feet at the base and it goes like a, like like that, like a beehive. And we were about five, six, seven feet up, and then the rain came, and that was the end of the project. And I decided, okay, no more, no more outdoor things. So yeah, uh, when uh, Donald Trump says uh, climate uh, change is a hoax, he's crazy. For many people, the ice and snow and cold of winter are something to be endured. But in a city like Montreal, characterized for so much of the year by winter. What is lost when that snow and ice and cold changes? What skating rinks? What ice castles? The full accounting of the cost of climate change is only getting started. But in Montreal, one thing is clear. Winter is changing. There's this feeling in Montreal that we have these really cold winters and we have minus 30, um, really intense cold. 
which uh, used to be the case, um, much more so. It's not the case now. So for example, the last time we observed um, minus 30 degrees was in 1994. This is Chris McRae. Postdoctoral researcher at uh, UCAM and at uh, Uranos, which is a climate change research consortium here in Montreal. So my, my postdoc research is on how uh, freezing rain events, so ice storms, how ice storms will change um, in a warming climate. Um, and so with the warmer temperatures, the what's happening is that we're seeing more uh, rain instead of snow uh, during the winter. And so it's a lot more kind of a slushy um, type of type of situation that we're seeing. So for example, in the, at the beginning of the, the 20th century, so around 1900, um, Montreal was seeing around 300 centimeters of snow uh, in an average winter. And um, nowadays it's more like 200 centimeters. So it's quite a substantial decrease in the amount of snow that we're observing. Um, and like I said, that's not because we're seeing less precipitation, right? So with climate change, we're expecting more and more uh, in the way of overall precipitation. Um, but what we're, what we're seeing is that the snow is instead falling as rain because it's just too warm. McRae says this doesn't mean there won't still be cold days in the future. Part of that has to do with the possibility that climate change will cause the jet stream to shift. There's um, kind of one camp of researchers who has found that um, we're, we're expecting more variability overall in the in the weather, so in the jet stream position. Um, so if the jet stream kind of plunges southward um, more often, then we might expect more cold outbreaks because that's allowing the Arctic air to move uh, southward. Um, so, so like I said, some researchers uh, are finding that there's going to be more variability, and so we might expect more extreme war, hot heat and more extreme cold. There's also the weather-climate distinction. Weather is the short-term conditions in the atmosphere that change from day to day, including the occasional very cold day. Whereas climate refers to the long-term average conditions, which now include higher average temperatures. But the feeling that winter is still very cold could also reflect our ability to get used to climate change. Kind of overall, what's, what's happening is that the extreme, what our definition of extreme is, um, is changing. And so... As the climate warms, there are still going to be days where it's really cold, but what are what what we perceive to be really cold um, is is less cold. It's less and less cold essentially. So yeah, there are going to be cold days all the time, and there might be record cold. You might have a, a day where we break a, a record low temperature, but as time goes by, we're breaking more and more record highs and fewer and fewer record lows. For example, so there's always going to be there'll always be extremes just because you know, the, the, the atmosphere is, is still working in, in roughly the same way. We still have cold and warm days, but the cold is getting less cold and the warm is getting uh, warmer and warmer. This isn't just in Montreal. Across Canada, snow is arriving later in the year and melting earlier. And average winter temperatures are increasing faster than the annual average. Winter temperatures rose by 3.3 degrees between 1948 and 2016 according to a federal report released in 2019. In Quebec, it was a 1.4 degree increase, more in cities like Montreal, where the urban heat island effect keeps temperatures from dropping. So because the the, the downtown kind of uh, land surfaces are such um, so much more like asphalt and concrete, um, those surfaces retain a lot of the heat that, that the sun 
in parts on the ground during the day. But winter is changing fastest of all in Canada's north, where average winter temperatures have risen by more than four degrees, with implications for transportation, harvesting and hunting practices, and overall well-being, particularly of Indigenous people. In the 35 years she's lived in Canada's Arctic, she says she's witnessed the sea ice changing. Hunters that used to hunt from 1981 and to this day, seasoned hunters are falling through the ice. This is the only road linking Umujak to the rest of the world. Since the surrounding terrain caved in, the tiny village and the far Canadian north seems even more isolated. Weather in other parts of the world. But these are extreme weather conditions. There are other changes, far more subtle and no less dramatic. The changes my community has seen because of their connection to the land. And as the consequences of climate change become harder to ignore everywhere, the sense of loss, of no longer recognizing a place or a season, is increasingly widespread. Loss sense of place, you know, our attachment to our surroundings, um, and if we're displaced from those surroundings or if those surroundings change so significantly um, because of ecological degradation related to climate change, that has a real effect on our sense of being, our sense of knowing, our, and our sense of um, community. So it really tends to affect um, who we are as people, particularly amongst Indigenous peoples, um, you know, in terms of traditional practices and traditional um, ways of relating to the environment, it can really affect um, how we relate to our natural world. This is Katie Hayes. And I'm a climate change and mental health researcher. Hayes says that, in addition to the stress and trauma caused by climate-related disasters that are already happening, such as wildfires or hurricanes or heat waves, the ever-present sense that there are more disasters on the horizon and the grief for what has already been lost are a source of anxiety. So perhaps we haven't experienced a specific hazard, um, but we all read the news and we all hear about uh, these events taking shape and how our climate is changing and the predictions for our future if we're not addressing the issue. And so this kind of awareness of climate change, the dire impacts, can really uh, weigh on many of us. And so we might start to feel anxious, uh, hopeless, um, like there's not a lot of action that's being taken. And uh, increasingly, there's been terms that are being used like eco-anxiety or climate anxiety or climate grief or eco-grief. Um, or a lost sense of place. But yeah, a lot of the, our anxieties and our fears and our worries um, can, can really come from this just general level of uncertainty, can also come with our frustration on the slow pace of change, you know, whether it's frustration about at, at the individual level, our families aren't making the decisions we want them to make um, to really, you know, act on climate change, or of course, at the macro levels, you know, whether it's, you know, at the geopolitical landscape is not addressing this as it as they should. And so we often have, you know, this feeling of helplessness. And when we have this feeling of helplessness, that can really kind of manifest itself in a whole host of ways in terms of our kind of emotional and behavioral responses. Winter just seems eternal, usually. It seems like six, seven months, and then all of the other seasons are kind of like, tack, 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 divided really quickly. So this is strange. 
specifically considering how November was, it was really cold. And then there was snow melting at the park and everybody was having picnics around it. So that was, I guess some years there was snow in November and it stuck. And that's not the case anymore. For me, it's more of a generalized malaise, I guess, and unease about the entire thing. Just because I see how things are unfolding. It's a precarious time, you know? I want to have more hope than I do despair. Because we're, at this point, I guess we're so used to this kind of like all over the place scattered type of um, like weather situations. Also thinking about the pandemic, how adaptable we've had to become that despite it being like ultimately um, horrifying as a circumstance that there was snow three days ago and then all of a sudden we can wear t-shirts and sit in a park. Um, I think we're just all really desperate to be in some different reality than we are in at the moment. Uh, so we kind of just go with it. Like I just went with it. I was like crying in the park, but I was still lying down in the t-shirt, kind of happy, feeling guilty, but I needed to be outside. I do feel such anxieties in my body. I've, I think I've always really kept up with like um, environmental news, environmental disasters and things like that. And I always keep an eye on things, um, the doings of politicians, the laws, and I try to anyway, as much as a lay person is able to. I I definitely feel these anxieties in my body too because I know that it's just getting worse. <laughs> I know that uh, policies are going in the wrong direction. I think I'm just afraid of this impending void. I don't know what it looks like, but I can just safely assume that it would be even more disconnected from like the physical planet. And I don't want that. So I think my fear is to feel even more disconnected and whatever that like accounts for. It's uh, the way that we understand and interact with the earth and then with each other as a result. Um, that scares me. When I think about these anxieties, I also, we also have to think about environmental racism too. Um, this looks like... Uh, the cottagers versus versus uh, indigenous people's right to harvest wild rice on the lakes. This looks like um, us being put in reservations where there was like really crappy land or something wrong with it. You know what I mean? Isolation. It looks like a lot of different things that um, I think a lot of people today still feel and live also in their bodies um, because indigenous peoples and um, other persecuted peoples here in this country and the world also carry that trauma from before and also. It is aggravated today by the same that same system. So um, I think for me, I'm definitely always feeling that. But the cure for it, the treatment for it, definitely is that same nature that uh, is under threat. In the face of the climate crisis and the impact it has on our minds, our bodies, and the planet we all share. It's easy to despair. For the vast majority of us, I guarantee you that even just that the temperatures that we faced this past summer are nothing of what we're going to face down the road. I mean, we're going to be facing temperatures quite equivalent to what we see in Florida on a regular basis. aware of 
shifts in the ranges, distribution ranges of animals in response to climate change. And since climate is warming so quickly now, these distances that they have to shift are kilometers and kilometers per decade that they need to shift. And if they cannot move quickly enough, they I mean, won't be able to... At some to... point, it's going to go to the tipping point that if, if only the minority uh, of, of forms and farmers and, and citizens are applying those practices, the, the impact will be too great on them to reverse the, the equation. So I wouldn't say it's too late, but it's actually very, very, very late. But amid the loss and the grief, there are opportunities too to redress long-standing injustices, to come together in support and protest, and to create more resilient communities. Researcher Katie Hayes. And it's important to capture um, the affirmative or positive outcomes that can occur. So in, in looking at um, the research, particularly as it relates to experiences of um, extreme weather events, whether it's you know a flood or a wildfire um, or hurricanes, often you see communities come together and really support one another. And there's a sense of altruism, compassion, and for some that can be post-traumatic growth, which is finding a sense of meaning or purpose in one's life. And so really trying to understand that our complex emotional responses and mental health responses to these events requires an all hands on deck, complex ways of addressing mental health in our changing climate. There's still hope and I'm still driven by this feeling uh, of being like super conscious um, and afraid about this like looming crisis. It bleeds everywhere. And I think that it's important to cover more than just the very literal part of being an activist and showing up to the protest. That's not the only way to be an activist. I would say that is my biggest definition is the showing up. Um, but what about like every other moment when you're not there? What are you doing? How are you talking? What are you thinking about? That could lead back to this climate crisis. Be like water. Water in the sense that even though it's soft, it can still crush rock. You know, eventually, whether it's wearing that rock, that same rock down, or whether it's all at once, water can help us stay soft and strong in life because we have control over water, our own at least. You know, we can always change the way we feel, we can change what continue to put our water in. You know, we're not simply static. To stay, stay soft and strong seems very contradictory, you know, almost oxymoronic, but it doesn't have to necessarily be so. Because softness, I think, can be strength. What sort of benefit does it give to my life to be hard and sharp like a jutting rock, you know? I would rather be the water that flows over that. I know it's it's difficult sometimes because water can be dammed up by the same rock. But eventually, you know, it'll go around it. It'll find a way to continue upon its way. 
This has been the final episode of Zone Rouge, featuring the voices of Peter Sipkis, Jonathan Brune, Craig Commanda, and Jess Murray. This episode was produced by me, Maura Donovan, with production help from Zoe Bailey Stetson. Maybe you've been listening to this series from your home amid a COVID-19 lockdown. Or maybe you're listening on an STM bus, watching the Montreal winter pass you by. Maybe the people you love are close, or maybe they're far. Wherever you are, take care of yourselves and each other. And thank you for listening. <laughs>